Opinion Battlegrounds with Terence Fane Saunders, brought to you by Chelgate, International Strategic Issues Management Consultants. Welcome to Opinion Battlegrounds. I'm Terence Fane Saunders, and I'm Executive Chairman of Chelgate, a strategic international public relations, public affairs, and issues management company. If you've listened to us before, you'll know the rules. We don't take sides. But we're here every couple of weeks to examine the controversies swirling around us. The debates, the arguments, the battles for your opinion. We're not going to talk about who's right or who's wrong. We're more interested in who's winning the argument and who's losing it. How? Why? What are the tricks of persuasion they're deploying to seduce you to their side of the argument and here to Talk with me about this are two fine old seducers, Liam Herbert and Jamie Monkton. Liam is chief executive at Chelgate and also heads our crisis management business. Over the years, Liam has had a formidable track record heading PR for corporations, battling international issues, running PR businesses and managing some of the most dramatic crises this country has in fact ever seen in recent years. So. Welcome, Liam. Thank you. Liam, I believe you have something in particular you'd like to talk about today. Yes, I've been following over Christmas the way the government is quietly changing how they communicate with us. Um, we saw a little bit of this during the election, and now that the new government is in power, we're beginning to see it challenge its relationship with the media a little bit more. Specifically, um, it's challenging the lobby, and traditionally how the media communicate and how the government communicate with the electorate. So the question really is, will Dominic Cummins change the lobby and shake up the Westminster bubble? Or will the journalists win? Who's winning the argument? Cummings or the journalists? That's an interesting thought. We'll come back to that shortly then. Also with us today is our other guest, Jamie Moncton. Jamie heads our international issues management business, both as a soldier and as a recognized world expert in the most advanced techniques of influence and persuasion, Jamie has fought his way across some of the most challenging battlegrounds in the world today. So, Jamie, welcome. You also have a topic up for discussion today. I do. Um, as a dual citizen with Australia, in Australia rather, and my parents and brothers living there have been following the, the bushfires with sort of great interest. Well, we've uh, always felt you sound Australian. I know, I've got a <laughs> slight twang, especially after a few beers. Uh, um, but what I want to discuss is, is the bushfires that are still raging across you know, multiple Australian yeah. territories. In particular, I want to explore uh, how the Prime Minister is coping with the disaster. Um, is he losing the war of opinion and whether or not he's truly suffering from this age-old adage of actions speak louder than words, which is what the press are eating up a bit about at the moment. So a bit more on that later, I hope. Yes, that's Something I'd really actually look forward to discussing. I've been getting a lot of messages from old friends and colleagues who are now living in Australia, and there's some interesting opinions being expressed on that particular battle for our opinion, in fact. Yeah. But first, let's consider the other main story over recent days. The killing of Qasem Soleimani has grabbed the headlines. But as we move into United States presidential election year, let's consider the broader context Let's talk about the great debate that is Donald Trump. So he's faced impeachment, 
For most presidents, that would be a matter of great embarrassment and concern. But is that how Donald Trump sees it? Or in the hugely polarized partisan world that is American politics, may that very process not actually harden and inflame his core supporters? There is a long and established principle in politics that if you are under pressure at home, there's nothing like a juicy foreign threat or a good foreign war to regain domestic support. Not a prolonged war, mind you. Nobody wants to be bogged down in another Vietnam, but a vigorous kick delivered to an unpleasant and overambitious foreign enemy, well, that plays rather well. Remember Margaret Thatcher and the Falklands? That was electoral catnip. Is that what Donald Trump is playing for? I have to confess, I'm still not sure as to whether Mr. Trump is a, an electoral genius or a misguided idiot, or somewhere in between, maybe an idiot savant. I've talked in previous podcasts about the change in his language vocabulary since he launched his political career. Is that exceptional, skilled targeting of his core support base? Or is it a frightening sign of neurodegenerative decline? Most people who agree with his policies would say one thing. Those who disagree, another. So, Liam, in the great debate that is Donald Trump, is he succeeding? And let's face it, what Donald Trump is most interested in is Donald Trump remaining president. Is he playing the battle right? Is he winning the battle for opinion? I think he is. He's, he's continued to confound his critics. He um, keeps bouncing back. He, he seems to shake off the troubles that would attract to a normal politician as, a, as if nothing happened. So Rather as Johnson gonna... did in the election here. Yeah. I mean, his yeah. private life, his behaviour and so on didn't seem to matter at all. And there are certain people that seem to have that ability. Yeah, and, and, and Trump is a, 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 is a, he's a character and, and politics is lacking characters. So mm. the, the likes of Johnson, the likes of Trump, it, it, it plays well to his, his core base and that's what he's communicating back to. So Jamie, I mean, is he an idiot or is he a very clever man? <laughs> is he going to win or is he going to f <laughs> think, hit the uh, rocks disastrously? <laughs> I mean, depending on what day of the week you ask me, I'll give you a different answer <laughs> each time. Um, I think in, in relation to um, the death of General Qasim, I actually think it is part of a strategic long game. Uh, I think he's got a decent-ish understanding of the procedures that are required within military. Um, which allow prosecution of that target. What I mean by that is last year, uh, the Americans under Pompeo and Trump dedicated uh, uh, the Quds fighting force, which General Qasim was the head of, as a terrorist organization. This meant that when they wanted to execute that target, they did not have to seek international permission. I think he's playing a real strategic long game. Then we talk about sort of communicating to his base and whether it's been effective. I think what he does really well is he communicates simplicity effectively. So when General Qasim um, uh, was killed, he just tweeted the American flag. Perfect. It appeals to that sort of that base and um, national sense of his, of his support base, which I think was really, really clever. I remember we talked about this during the general election here. I mean, mm. we, we were saying the trick seems to be these days Keep it simple and repeat your message again and again and again. And it worked for Johnson. 
Yeah, QED can, Johnson, QED Trump. It comes, it comes across as well as if it's... He has this ability to present it as if I've just thought of this and we're going to do it now, mm. even though you can actually see the wheels moving a little mm. bit behind it. But it's, it's a very clever approach. So, it right, is. I'm going to be holding you to this in November. <laughs> is he going to win? Are we going to see the continuation of President Trump? It depends. I believe it depends on how long this, this conflict, if we can call it a conflict yet, with Iran uh, goes on for. Whether, I think, if a conflict is protracted, it loses public support. If it is a short, precise conflict with a strategic end state of, say, being re-elected as president, and he knows, okay, fine, we're only going to escalate it to a certain level. We're going to keep it escalated for a certain amount of time, and then we're going to reduce it, which has been done in the past, then great. So I think it's a matter of time before we know whether or not it's going to help his re-election. I think if we're still talking about potential World War Three with Iran and all the proxies and asymmetric warfare in the Levant in three months' time, then he's probably got it wrong. You know, this is a horrible thought. And, and I hesitate almost to say it, but it seems to me that if President Trump has provoked the Iranians into a response of particular horror, something violent resulting in many deaths, particularly American deaths, in a horrible way that favors Mr. Trump, mm. because I think there would be an immediate hardening of support around the president. Mm. and. Certainly, I, I'm not going to go so far as even to speculate that this may have been even in his thinking as he took this action. But the awful reality of, of modern politics and, and, and international affairs is that that would be the case. And, and it's frightening that, that might, one might even think that that could colour his judgment. But he, he has a clear playing field at the moment as well, because there's no... The Democrats haven't settled on who exactly it's going to be facing him. So at the moment, he's got no clear opposition, and he's blackening the characters of all of them equally currently. And, and the Democrats still haven't learned how to respond to Trump at all. It is an astonishing thing, isn't it, that the Democrats, I was just looking at the opinion, latest opinion polls again, you know, you've got Sanders and Biden as the two leaders, both well into their 70s, both the two leaders in the opinion polls among the Democrats. It's quite extraordinary, really. I mean, what has happened to the young, bright, dynamic leadership that they surely, a country the scale of the United States should be able to produce out of the well, Democratic and, Party. And, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast between, say, Finland, where the new prime minister is a 34-year-old woman, and you have essentially people in their late 60s, early 70s in the States. There's, there's a difference in the system. There's a difference in how that comes forward. But again, the Democrats haven't really challenged Trump they're, they're challenging each other as much as they're challenging Trump, and he's he's got an open he's got an open goal at the moment to pitch the patriotism message from America during this period. It's quite I mean, it's quite easy to win an argument, actually, isn't it? If the other side is incapable of arguing back, and mm. at the moment the Democrats, for whatever reason, have got themselves tied into knots, mm. and mm -hmm. they need to get their act together. But so back to your original yeah. point, though, about an Iranian retaliation on sort of a large kinetic mm. level. Um, you know, death of American soldiers or whatever it may be. If you just look at the last 48 hours, you've already had a couple of retaliations, but they've received very little press. The State Department hacked so the cyber threat, um, and they've already landed a couple of soft kinetic targets, but with no deaths, and the media had nothing to do with it. No, the media are waiting for something They're waiting for much something more much more juicy yes, and spectacular yes. to actually get their teeth into. Which probably the Iranian people are waiting for as well and have an expectation of. So it'll be... Grim, uh, but we'll watch and we will reconsider and we will, I'm sure, be discussing it further. Let's 
return to the UK. Let's return to our new government. Let's return to what Mr Cummings is up to, Liam. You wanted to talk about this. Yes, Mr Cummings, who's decided that government needs reorganising, but also the way the government communicates needs reorganising. And we saw a little of this um, in uh, over the last year and, and as we got towards the end of Brexit, or get Brexit done, as, uh, as we have to refer to it. Um, and the way that government is now speaking to the electorate directly and cutting out that, that element of the fifth estate, the press, who the press's traditional role has always been to act as a democratic check on um, those in power, uh, whether it's the judiciary, whether it's the state, whether it's government. But we've seen increasingly the, the element of the Westminster bubble coming under scrutiny not just by the government, but by the opposition and by politicians and by people outside of London going, well, you're not really talking to us or about us. Cummings has um, decided that the, the way that the government briefs, which is awfully dull, but twice a day in the, in the press lobby to the lobby, which is an unattributed briefing, is going to change one of these meetings happens now in uh, Downing Street which basically means that all the, the usual suspect journalists have to trot down to Downing Street and ask questions of the government there, which seems not a great deal of change or a big thing in, in the great scheme of things, but subtly alters the way government deals with the lobby. Now, is this an attempt to break up the lobby and the power of the lobby and how they report that cosy Westminster world? And, and if it is, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Yeah. Who knows? Well, but the way it's playing out at the moment, it seems that the, the message that's coming out of Downing Street and out of Number 10 is that we need to change how we talk to people and people are ready to be talked to in a different way. Well, I mean, it is an interesting debate, really, with the, the two sides, isn't it? Because it, it seems to me that one could look at it and say, yeah, the, the press are our defenders. And as you say, they are holding the powerful to account. And so until you read the press and you look at the polarization of the press and so on. But someone has to hold government to account. And it's difficult for you or me or anybody else, even with this very fine podcast, to be dragging the government out and making them talk. But the flip side of that is to say, who has appointed the press? Uh, to be our guardians in this way. Um, we have elected the government. We haven't elected the media. And the government can choose to communicate in the way that they feel is best and fairest and not necessarily shaped by a very partisan and polarised media. You can argue it on both sides, and it's, it's a very interesting argument, but quite clearly this particular administration have decided that they think that the media is too partisan to be prepared to work with. I mean, well, Jamie, where's this argument going <coughs> to go, do you think? I think one of the counter-arguments from the media perspective would be that it, it actually is not more fair, especially for the smaller media outlets who don't have the personnel to be in both locations to get all the information. Um, I don't know where the argument's going to go to, but I mean, a lot of what Boris has done has seemed to emulate, and I hate to bring it back to Trump, but it does emulate Trump and this sort of American style of media briefing didn't actually really come as a surprise to me, nor the civil service overhaul. I think we're going to see British politics and its relationships with the media evolve into a more American style system where actually the media is controlled by the state, which probably isn't a great thing for democracy. Um, but in some ways it means that there is a fairness of the narrative that's been disseminated and the larger tabloids and the large news agencies aren't going to get preferential treatment. 
Um, that's obviously the government's argument. Um, but I don't actually really have an opinion on where I sit on the matter because I don't know enough about do, it. Do we, do we still need the lobby in terms of that group of political journalists operating in the way they do with so many channels to communicate, so many MPs, ministers on Twitter, on social media, the government communicating directly through channels. Do you need that lobby system anymore? It's a very fair question. Um, uh, I think the, uh, <laughs> the current administration has a pretty solid view on that. And I think we may see a, a real decline in, in the standing of the lobby over but the next Maybe it also makes journalists work a little bit harder. Because if, if you are going to hold democracy to account and go hold the government to account, then you need to work harder for your stories and investigate more and challenge more, rather than be part of the, the symbiotic relationship that's grown up in Westminster. In, in, another, in another podcast, I want to come back to the whole issue of changes in lobbying and representation and holding government to account and so on. And, and one of the things which, in fact, you'll be touching on probably today, uh, Jamie, as you look at Australia, is whether we might be seeing a real reaction against the idea of vested interest buying politicians effectively through very large donations and special interest. And that suddenly we could see that becoming something which is unacceptable to the public, to governments around the world, to public opinion. And then lobbying has to take a different approach, not just by lobbyists, but by other interested groups, organizations, um, industry bodies, whoever, NGOs, campaigning and lobbying without necessarily buying their way to influence. But I'd like to come back to that on a different day. But but it's a very it's a very interesting debate. And I don't think we can yet quite declare the winner. No, <laughs> let's see how it goes. But meanwhile, much more grim in a way, mm. Jimmy, is, is what's happening in Australia. And it's both a, a horrific story. I mean, you see these images of Australia right now. It looks like the entire country is aflame. And you, you look at the, the real suffering it's causing. But then you've got the very interesting political debate that is taking place about responsibility, about causes, uh, uh, about accountability. What are you hearing? I think the main thing I'm hearing, and I spoke to my father of all people, who's in the, who's in the mining industry, so I've got a bit to say later about uh, <laughs> donations to political parties <laughs> from, from particular sectors in Australia. Yeah. Um, it's not actually what people are arguing at the moment isn't what are the reasons behind the fires or or how bad the loss of life is. You know, half a billion animals uh, have been killed. A billion, I mean, it's an extraordinary amount. Or even how the fires are being dealt with. People are largely in consensus on that. What people are really debating at the moment is whether the Prime Minister actually cares about what is happening. Does he display any empathy and sympathy? And can he actually be trusted? Uh, and that's what they've been debating over the last uh, last week, particularly since his, his last announcement. Um, he, he's suffered a huge deterioration of positive public sentiment with his disapproval rating uh, skyrocketing up nine points to 43%. He wasn't that popular before. No, no, he wasn't. But he, he was elected with great hope. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's a wordsmith. He's, he's an ex-marketing yeah. guru. And he won I the... I wouldn't trust him, though. No, quite right. <laughs> um, but uh, he's been lambasted by the media at the moment for playing politics in a time when politics shouldn't be being played. Now, what about this allegation, which you're reading everywhere, that basically the reason he's been slow to act on the environment and the reason he's been slow to act on the fires is, putting it crudely, that he is in the pockets of the coal industry. And that has been said again and again and again. And I think that 
that particular uh, line of persuasion has has been taken over by some more recent ones. However, I was looking up some of the statistics of that, and actually in the top 10 uh, donations uh, to both political parties, the Liberal Party and the Labour Party in Australia, only one mining company features in the top 10 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually for quite a small amount, it's only for about $150,000. Um, where the top donations are actually going to the opposition party at the moment of about 650000 But in response to that argument, what's happened is they are saying no longer is transparency enough for donations from corporates, private sector or, or individuals. It has to move beyond transparency and we have to go to a donation cap. So for an individual it has to be, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something quite minimal, like $3,000. And then for a private or corporate it has to be $15,000 or something like that. And that instills a, a greater sense of, of fairness because traditionally the coal sector, the mining sector, the gold mine sector in particular uh, invest a lot of money into the Liberal Party which is where the Prime Minister uh, currently sits. Um, but the that issue has seemed to have died a death in the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. but particularly over the last four days after uh, Scott Morrison's release of his, his social media video uh, shortly after oh. his press release. Um, which he, he gave a press release in response to what's been happening. One of the issues, uh, according to the government, is that the federal government has had very poor communications with the state governments, and so they're not talking to each other, so there's a bit of stepping over each other, and stepping over each other's, on each other's toes, rather. Uh, so he, he issued this 30-minute statement with the mainstream press, and then shortly after, within an hour, released an Instagram video highlighting all the statistics but instead of branding it as the Australian government, you know, this is what we're doing to help this many more planes, this much more money invested, etc. He branded it as himself and the Liberal Party. He then put a donate button on the Facebook page to, oh the, to the Liberal Party, oh not to the Australian government or to the firefighting effort. Uh, and that is what he's had his, oh, I was going to say something quite crass. You say it's <laughs> what he's had his feet held to the fire on, but um, <laughs> oh uh, that's what we'll he's stay in a away bit of strife. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's in a bit of strife about at the moment. Yes, uh, but, but so you feel some people just can't help themselves. And, and time and again in politics, you see really intelligent people making really unintelligent moves. Yeah. We blamed some of the actions that happened during the election campaign here on junior members of staff. And one tends to blame the man in charge, but of course, you know, there's a very complex matter taking place and things have to be delegated. So, but someone somewhere obviously actually made a rather stupid decision there. Yeah, and what's happening, the things that he's actually saying and what his party and his government are saying are good. His words are great. He is saying the right things, but it's his actions that are betraying his words. And I think he's, he's just forgotten that actions speak louder of words and we communicate a lot with action, just as much, if not more, in, in modern communications uh, than words. For example, starting off the crisis in Hawaii on a family holiday, he's on the back foot immediately. He's having to regain trust uh, from the audience. He then goes out and, and tries to shake hands with people in an area that's been recently affected by the fires and people have been killed, and they call him all sorts of profanities. Uh, it's a delicate judgment, that, though, isn't it? Because, for instance, you know, he does that and he's, he's insulted. But then, of course, Boris Johnson was criticised for being yeah. too slow in getting himself up to Yorkshire, to, uh, that part of Yorkshire which was being hit by the floods. Yeah. And going to visit the site of 
somewhere that's been hit by a natural disaster. It seems to be the right thing, but if it's not backed up simultaneously by clear action, just going and wringing your hands and showing you're empathetic, that could work up to a point. Yeah, and how you behave in that situation. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, he, when people were yelling profanities at him and refusing to shake his hand, he just walked off, turned his back on them and walked to the car. That was it. He didn't try and engage with them or try to talk to them. You know, they've just suffered this incredibly emotionally traumatising situation. And he just didn't engage with them on this basic human level and display any sort of empathy. He just turned his back on them and walked to the car. And that that action in of itself communicates significantly his... his and I'm sure it's not true, but it communicates a lack of empathy. Mm. And I'm sure he's cred- incredibly empathetic and, and has a oh, lot yeah. of sympathy for... <laughs> you know, I'm sure he is. But um, what he's doing isn't communicating, I think, the sincerity of, of his empathy that he feels. More sympathy rather than empathy. Well, there we are, the importance of actions rather mm-hmm. than words. And um, the ideal, of course, in our business is to combine the two and, and have them working together. Correct. It's been great talking about these three really quite difficult subjects today. And uh, I'm not sure we've really come to much of a conclusion other than Mr. Trump seems to be winning his own private war. And I'm not sure that everybody around the table necessarily thinks that's a good thing, but he does seem to be winning. These are issues I'm quite sure we will be coming back to in future editions of Opinion Battlegrounds. And we very much hope that you'll be with us again for those discussions. In the meanwhile, I would like to thank my two guests today, uh, Liam and Jamie, for being here and joining in this discussion. Thank you, chaps. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. fun. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for listening to Opinion Battlegrounds. Please subscribe to receive the latest episodes and you can follow us on Twitter at Chelgate or email contact at chelgate.com. 